0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. John chapter 6, verses 16 to
1: 20. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these incredible stories about Jesus. Uh, We ask that you might make them new and real to us uh, and fresh this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I joked in the kids' talk about walking on water, but... I uh, actually have a confession to make. I have actually once tried to walk on water. <laughs> it was not long after I met Ivana, my now wife. Uh, we just started dating, but things were feeling like they were a bit too intense. Uh, it was all just a bit dramatic, and we jumped in too fast, it felt like, and, and we needed to take a step back. And it turned out that she was thinking the same thing, and so we arranged to meet up in a park in between our two houses, and break up. That was the plan, to break up. Thankfully, though, we didn't. First of all, I had a bit of trouble getting there. Uh, we were supposed to meet at 6 o'clock or something, straight after work. Uh, but as I was driving there, my car ran out of petrol, which is bizarre, because like, I, I like to live right on the edge with my empty, uh, empty fuel tank, but I watch it very, very closely, and I was just so consumed thinking about all these things I needed to say to Ivana that I totally forgot about it. And then I couldn't call her because somehow I'd managed to leave my phone. Uh, The battery had run out as well, so I couldn't call it. And so poor Ivana is at this park wondering what on earth has happened. Where is this guy? What is he playing at? There's there's no way I'm going to stay with this guy. He can't even manage his life in any way, shape or form. And so she kept saying, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to go. I'm done. But something was stopping her. Something was stopping her. Every time she was about to leave, she sensed that God was telling her to stay, and so she did. And finally, several hours later, I arrived. And I still remember seeing Ivana on the other side of the park. Well, actually, it may well have been someone else. It was pitch black by this stage. But but I do remember walking across the park to her, uh, and I was thinking about what I would say, and then just saying Nothing. And neither did she, and we just hugged in the middle of this park. And we just decided that no, this is silly. We're just going to keep going. And we have kept going for another 15 years. Well, anyway, Ivana left for home that night, but I stayed in the park because I wanted to do some praying. Like I just wanted to pray about this. I felt like I needed God's wisdom for the future to just really work out where we were headed. And I felt like this was a moment for faith, of really trusting God. And then I saw a pond. It was a little one. It was definitely a pond. It was a body of water. (laughs) And when I looked at it, I thought about Jesus walking on the water and then how Jesus enabled Peter to as well. And now I face a dilemma (laughs) because I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm looking at this pond. I'm thinking about faith. I feel like God's asking me to trust him. So is God asking me to try walking on this pond? Like, this seems crazy, but perhaps I've just got to trust him and just step out in faith. I mean, I know that you can't just expect God to enable you to do every kind of supernatural thing that there is, but elsewhere the Bible says you should just ask and see what God does. And so I'm thinking to myself, maybe, maybe God is asking me to do this. And so I stepped out. We're in week five of our series. Uh, (laughs) That'll keep you interested till the end, won't it? We're in week five of our series, looking at the signs of Jesus, some of the dramatic miracles that he performed that point to who he is and why he came. And today we come to one of the most famous stories of them all, Jesus walking on the water. This is a memorable story, it's told in three of the Gospels, John and also by Matthew and Mark. Uh, There's differences in how they tell the story. Matthew has a whole other bit that we saw about Peter that the others leave out. But today I'm just going to kind of try and synthesize all of these stories and put them all together. Uh, This story comes straight after the feeding of the 5,000. We heard about that last week, didn't we? Pastor Coy was telling us how the crowds followed Jesus into the wilderness, but they hadn't brought any food, and so Jesus has to provide for them. With five loaves and two fishes, He provides everything that they need. And the crowd's amazed. They're awestruck by this, and they want, we're told, to make Him king right there and then, right on the spot. But Jesus resists this, withdrawing from them and sending His disciples away. And this is where we pick up the story. Jesus is alone up on the mountain and his disciples are away on this boat on the sea. The sea of is the Sea of Tiberias, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And it was famous for its sudden and savage storms. It was basically in the middle of a gorge uh, with these high, high sides on either side. And great winds would just kind of whistle through there with little warning. And so we're told here in John 6, 19, that the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Uh, The language is even stronger in the other Gospels. Mark says that the wind was against them and Matthew says they were being beaten by the waves, almost as if the sea has this personal vendetta against these disciples. Perhaps it does. You might remember there was another story where they're on this same sea, and Jesus is in the boat with them, and there's this massive storm, and then he gets up and calms it. So, so perhaps the sea is kind of coming back and saying, right, we're going to try again. We're going to try and destroy these disciples. This time, they don't seem to be in the same physical danger, but they're certainly starting to struggle. We're told that they were making headway painfully. They've been rowing all night. They're tired. They're frustrated. And then suddenly, in the fourth watch, which is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., they see a figure Looking like a man crossing across the waves. And just imagine that. Like seeing someone, a man, walking across the water. I mean, how would you respond? It's not a standard thing to see. The disciples were told were frightened, terrified even. In Matthew, they cry out, It's a ghost, because surely a physical being can't do something like this. It just hasn't worked. But it's not a ghost. It is, of course. Jesus, and he calls to them now through the wind, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In John and in Mark, Jesus now comes up to the boat and the disciples gladly receive him. But in Matthew, only in Matthew, there's another crazy moment where the Apostle Peter calls out, asks Jesus, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter actually gets out of the boat and starts to walk on the water as well. It's amazing. It seems too crazy to imagine. And it's like Peter suddenly realises what he's doing. He starts to see the wind and he's afraid and he begins to sink. And so he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus stretches out his hand and does rescue him. They both get into the boat and they make it safely to the shore. In fact, there, there almost seems to be another miracle where they're suddenly at the shore. Somehow Jesus has just kind of transported them there. Well, it's an incredible story. And what is God saying to us through it? See, as we've seen through this series, these aren't ever just miracles, they're signs. And as the writer Anthony Salvaggio reminds us, when God provides a sign, he is using it to point people to an essential spiritual truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. So what is the essential spiritual truth or truths that Jesus is showing us here? Well, the first one is really that Jesus is God, that he is divine. I've always been a bit terrified by the sea. I'm a rubbish swimmer. I can do breaststroke, sort of. So then if there was like a, a shark chasing me, I'd just be like, just hoping that maybe I wouldn't disturb the water enough so that he'd kind of forget about me. And one of the guys in this church keeps inviting me to go fishing out on his little tinny, and for months I just tried to put it off because I'm terrified. He's like, we're just going to go out like 10 (laughs) kilometres. No, it horrifies me, the very thought of it. I would have fit in right in the ancient world because they thought the same. They were afraid of the sea. As the writer Andrew Wilson explains, for many nations in the ancient world, the seas were a place of confusion and darkness, hundreds of miles of blank, featureless depths filled with monsters and storms and marauding enemies. That's how they viewed it. And for the Jews, it was something similar. Tom Wright says in some of their stories, the seas were associated with chaos, evil, untamable forces within the natural or the spiritual world. Untamable forces, untamable for men, but not for God. See, in amongst all of these stories that they had of the, the the scariness of the sea, they had these stories as well that of God being in control of the sea. Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them because ultimately it belonged to him and it even went more specific than that. Job 9 says that God trampled the waves of the sea, that God could walk upon the wilds of the sea. And so now when you imagine that and you're a disciple in this boat and you see the waves going up and down and then you see Jesus walking on top of them, trampling the waves of the sea, this means something to you. This means that he is God. And then he confirms it with what he says. John 6 verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. That could actually be translated, don't fear for I am here. I am is here. And if you, if you know your Old Testament, you know that those words I am have a deep meaning in Jewish culture. See, when God was introducing himself to his people, he called himself I am. It was the only way that he could describe his eternal uh, nature. He's the one who always was, who always will be, who always is. He's the eternal now. He is I am. He's self-existent. When, when Moses was uh, trying to, uh, was about to go back to Egypt, he says, how do I explain who you are? And God says, tell them, I am has sent you. And so here, Jesus is taking that name as well. He's saying, I am is here. He's telling them that he is God. He's showing them in what he can do. And now he's telling them in the name that he's taking. And that's why this story is so significant, and it's so important for us to take it as it is. See, there's been lots of attempts to kind of explain away this story. The writers of the Gospels are describing a miracle, right? Something supernatural. And that just doesn't fit in with our rational, scientific worldview. And so people have tried to come up with a more logical explanation. Some people suggest, for instance, that the disciples were just mistaken, that Jesus wasn't walking on water, but he was actually just walking on sandbars, and it looked like he was walking on the water. Well, some people think that maybe uh, there was sort of rocks nearby, and he was sort of walking along the rocks, but none of that makes sense. See, we have to remember that the, the waves were rough. The sea was rough. See, in all of the kids' books that you've seen of this story, you probably see Jesus just walking along a nice, smooth bit of water, right? But actually, in reality, the waves were going up and down. It's almost like he's a, a rock climber walking up and down these waves coming across them to the sea. It was undeniable that somehow he was walking on the sea. Others say that perhaps he was just walking around the sea and he was near it. But why then were the disciples so afraid? Why were they alarmed? No, it's because they recognised that something supernatural was happening right in front of their eyes. And that is the best explanation for it, which for me opens up a broader point, the need for us to grapple with the supernatural in the Gospels, in the Bible, and to embrace it. So perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're exploring the message of Christianity and you're finding it difficult when you come up against these supernatural stories, these miracles. It just It doesn't fit. Or perhaps you're here and and you've got a friend who's exploring Christianity and you sort of feel a bit embarrassed when you come to these stories. Like, I can't tell this story. Like, it just sounds ridiculous, right? it doesn't fit in our worldview. What I would say is that we need to accept that these stories are real because they are absolutely central to the message of Christianity. They explain, they show, they demonstrate who Jesus is why he's different, why he's unique. And these stories run right through the Gospels. You can't basically move in the Gospels without bumping into something supernatural. And it's right at the core of our beliefs that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus died and literally rose again. All of these things are essential to what we believe. And so we're going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to either accept it or leave the whole thing. Believe it or leave the whole message of Christianity. We're going to have to grapple with the supernatural. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Yes, it's not. A, there's not a natural explanation for it. But of course there isn't. This is supernatural. And if you choose to believe this, then the whole thing opens up. You see, we don't apologise for these stories. We celebrate them because they show us the greatness of Jesus. And that's John's message. In the Gospel of John, these supernatural events are always signs, signs about who Jesus is. He says right at the end, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying these stories show us who Jesus is and offer us life through him. And that's what the disciples seem to recognise. Matthew 14, verse 33, when they see this, they're in the boat and they worship him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So how will we respond to this story? Will we respond with faith to recognise that Jesus truly is the Son of God? Okay, so that's the first thing that we see. And the second thing I want to point out today is that Jesus is with us in the storm, in the storms of life. Uh, there's sort of that literal interpretation as we look at the miracle, but then there's also this kind of metaphorical interpretation that we can have. Now, I'm always a little bit nervous about allegorizing scripture and finding lots of symbolic meaning and everything. You know how it is, like you, you read about Israel and Egypt, and you have to try and identify the pharaohs in your life or You hear about David and Goliath. Who's the Goliath who's against you? What are are the five smooth stones in your armoury? Whatever it is. like We always try to find these poetic, symbolic meanings. And I'm a bit anxious about doing those things. But it's impossible not to see a symbolic meaning in this story. And even some of the most cautious commentators see the same. See, this story, you might see it as a kind of a parable. It's a literal thing that happens that shows us who Jesus is, but it also points to the nature of life and faith and discipleship about how God is with us in the storms of life. See, life is full of storms, isn't it? For many people, it's the storm of suffering. Think of the people here who are suffering a significant long-term illness, a physical illness perhaps, like fibromyalgia, like pain every day for decades, crippling pain and fatigue. Or it might be a mental illness. The black dog of depression just hounding you or anxiety. These things are with you all the time. That's the storm that's with you all the time. For others, it might be disappointment and discouragement. Perhaps life just hasn't worked out the way you wanted it to. You had high hopes. You had a big vision, but none of it has come together. Your business has failed. Your marriage is over. Maybe you wanted to get married and it never happened for you. Either way, you're nursing this feeling of discouragement and you're being weighed down by it. Or well, perhaps the storm has come because of betrayal. Someone has broken your trust. You feel like they've just ripped your heart out and stamped it on the ground. And, and now you feel swamped by these waves of anger and hurt. How could they do this? And Perhaps you face now the storm of conflict, You're either going to have to leave this relationship entirely or try to reconcile. But to reconcile, you're going to have to work through some very difficult conversations, some hard feelings, and it's churning you up just thinking about it. Or it might be seasons of doubt. Perhaps you have times where you struggle to believe that God is real or that the Bible is reliable, and it's poisoning your faith these seasons. I talked before about how important the supernatural is. Well, there was a season in my life where I just really struggled to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I knew that it was central to the message of Christianity, that Christianity falls apart if we don't have it, and I couldn't be sure that I believed it. And It was this horrible season of doubt and and just wondering what to think. Now, by God's grace, I was able to work through it, but it took a long time of angst. It felt like a storm of doubt. Or perhaps you sense the storms of opposition. As Christians, we see the storm clouds rolling in. A hatred of Christians is not fair, that's not logical, and we feel under threat. Perhaps you've even experienced it sometimes. Maybe at work, you, you've you've copped it because you have stood up for what you believe in. You, you stood firm when there, when there could be compromise. You've decided not to do that. We don't want to be rejected by our friends. We don't want to be hurt by other people. We don't want to face persecution just for doing what is right. These are the storms of life and they're all around us. The the disciples are on the sea and they're buffeted by the waves and we feel like we're being buffeted by the waves around us as well. And we wonder if life is just against us or perhaps we even think maybe God is against us. But if this story is a kind of parable, then the message of it is that God is not against us and that actually he is there with us in the storms. And there's five things that I want to point out about how this works. I found a bunch of great stuff from a guy called Warren Weasby. I want to. There's five kind of statements that I want you to kind of have for yourself in the storms. The first one is this. Tell yourself, Jesus brought me here. So Jesus sent his disciples out onto the sea, knowing that a storm would come. That's what you get in the other gospels. In Matthew and Mark, we're told that he made the disciples go into the boat. He compelled them to do this. He knew the storm would come and he sent his disciples into it. Now that might make us think, well, why? Why would God do that? Why would Jesus send them out into the storm when he knows it's going to be difficult for them. And we actually know that God does this repeatedly. In Matthew 10, for instance, Jesus says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Like this is what's going to happen to you. There is a storm coming and I'm going to send you out into it. Now we might think, well, is God just trying to hurt me? torture me? No. If Jesus sends us out into the storm, we must know, we must have faith that he has a plan, that he wants to work in the storm and through the storm. As Weusby points out, there's two kinds of storms in our lives. There's correcting storms and there's perfecting storms. There's storms for discipline and then storms for development. See, sometimes it is true that we have storms in our life because God is trying to, uh, is pruning us and, and dealing with a sin in our life. You think of Jonah. He rejects God. He refuses to do what God asks him to do. And so he ends up in a storm. That's a disciplinary storm. But most of the time God offers us storms so he can develop us. He sends us out so that we can learn and grow. Life with God is not smooth sailing. But in the storm, God wants to show us important things. And so uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul even says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So he's actually seeing that God is doing something in the storm. So you can tell yourself, when the storm comes, Jesus sent me into this storm, and so I'm going to trust him. And then secondly, you can know that Jesus is praying for you now. A couple of times uh, within our staff team at City on a Hill, we've done a little exercise. Uh, maybe we're on a staff retreat, or something like that. And we'll ask ourselves, if Jesus was next door praying for you, what would he be praying? It's quite a helpful thing to do. It invites you to ponder how God is viewing your life and, and what he's trying to do in your life, what his plans might be. But it's also just a really humbling and encouraging thing because it reminds us that Jesus actually prays for his people. He prays for you and me. That's what the Bible says. Romans eight thirty four. he is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Jesus is praying for us. And that's what we see in this story as well. He makes his disciples go out onto the storm, but we read in verse 46, he went up on the mountain to pray. They're out on the storm, but he is there praying for them. I'm sure he's praying about lots of things praying about his ministry and so on, but he's also praying for his disciples, praying that they will be kept safe, praying that they will learn through the storm. And so in the storms of life, know that Jesus is praying for you. He's seeking your good. Yes, he sends you out into the storm, but he sends you out with his prayers. And then thirdly, Jesus will come to you in the storm. See, yes, Jesus was praying, but he didn't just sort of stay up on the mountain. He did come down to them. He saw his disciples struggling against the wind, and so he came to them. He came to them across the sea. Isaiah 42, when you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. That's what God says to us. He says that he will come to us in the storm. And actually it's in these storms that we see God up close in a new way. Uh, Kent Hughes points out the example of Job. You probably know the story. Here is a guy who had everything, wealth, prosperity, wonderful family, and then he loses it all. In just a few days, his flocks, his herd, his children, his health, this great storm of suffering. But by the end of the book, Job 42, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Do you see what's happened? He's had this storm, but God has come to him in the storm and now he understands truly what God is like. Perhaps you've had that experience too in those really difficult moments of life, you've actually come to understand who God is. As Paul puts it, the love of God has been poured into your heart. It's interesting to me when Jesus comes to his disciples. See, the Jews would divide the night up into four parts, four watches, and we're told that Jesus came to his disciples in the fourth watch, in the last watch. They say it's always darkest before the dawn, that the the hardest part of the night is just before the day breaks. And that's what it was like for the disciples. They've struggled all night and now, only now, does Jesus come to them. And it often feels like that, doesn't it? When we face storms, we long for God to show up, but he often only shows up when we've got nothing left, in the fourth watch, when the marriage feels over when you've had yet another miscarriage, when the bank account is down to zero. see, He doesn't seem to give you that first job. He often just waits to the 51st. Now, why does he do this? Well, I think it's probably because he wants us to truly and really feel our need for him and discover his provision. See, when we want something... We're desperate for it. And yes, we pray, but let's be honest, we're pulling every other lever at the same time. Yes, we imagine that he could do something, but we're still finding our own self-reliance at the same time. We're still trying to work it out for ourselves. We're still trying to get through the storm in our own strength. And sometimes I think God just says, I'm going to wait until you realise you can't. And then he comes in the fourth watch. And so if you're here today and you are deep in the storm and you can't go back and you know that you can't go forward, you feel like the waves are crashing all over you right now, look for Jesus because it might be late enough for him to come. And then fourthly, we've learned here Jesus will help us grow through the storm. See, what are we to make of Peter in this story? He's famous for getting out and trying to walk on water and then sinking. And if you read the Gospels, this feels very Peter. Like he's constantly uh, impetuous, jumping in, feet first, <laughs> into what a, whatever is happening without really thinking about it. And this feels like another example of it. In fact, some people, some commentators have condemned him for what he does here. Uh, John Calvin said it was an overreach. He shouldn't have tried to walk on the water. But I think that's a bit harsh. So you'll notice that Jesus actually invited Peter to do it. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And then Jesus says, come. So, so Peter is asking and Jesus grants that. And so rather than focusing on his sinking, I'd actually like to focus on his floating. Because for just a bit there, Peter walked on water. Like his talk, kids talk would have been Amazing. And actually, J.C. Ryle, uh, the writer, says that this is an even greater miracle. See, see, when Jesus walked on the water, we can kind of work that out because he was God. But Peter was a mere mortal and he walked on water. And this actually emphasises the power of Jesus. See, he gave his disciples the power to do the supernatural. In Matthew 10, he says, I'm giving you the authority over unclean spirits, And then he gave them the ability to heal diseases. And here he gives Peter the ability to walk on water. makes you wonder, actually, what else might be possible. What else might we do in the power of God? Or to put it more accurately, what might God do through us in his power? Charles Spurgeon says we can do anything if we have divine authorization and courage enough to take the Lord at his word. Now note the condition that Spurgeon puts on it: divine authorization. Like we have to know that God is actually getting us to do this, He's asking us, He's permitting us to do this. See, some people presume on God, demanding the supernatural. Peter's much more humble here. He he asked Jesus, can I do this? But still, I want you to see his incredible faith. See, he had the audacity to ask. Jesus, can you let me do this? He asked this to happen, and then he stepped out in faith. I mean, this is a raging storm, and he steps out on top of it because he trusts that Jesus will enable him to do it. So this is an invitation for us, I think, to ask for God's power, power to resist temptation, power to stand firm in faith, power to do what is right. He's promised those things to us if we seek them. So Peter had wonderful faith. I don't want to focus on his sinking. I want to focus on his floating. And yet, of course, his faith did waver. As he's walking along the water, he realises, he remembers the wind and becomes afraid and begins to sink. And and I think what happened here is that he lost sight of Jesus. He's walking towards Jesus. He's trusting in Jesus. And so he realises what is possible. That even the impossible is possible because Jesus can enable him to do it. But then he loses sight of that. He remembers that it feels impossible. And Jesus actually says that he has little faith. Why did you doubt? As Craig Keener says, Jesus is, gen- uh, Peter is gently reproved, not for presumptuously stepping out from the boat, but then for presumptuously doubting in the very presence of Jesus. So once Jesus had given the command, walking on water is simply a matter of trusting the one who's performed so many miracles in the past. See, it actually made sense for him to trust Jesus because he'd just seen what Jesus could do. So Peter's faith wavered, and and sometimes I feel like we're like that too, aren't we? See, there are times where we're in the storm and we're looking for Christ's power, and there are times where we really grasp it and we see it. We're we're standing firm in conviction. We're doing what God has asked us to do. We have courage to face opposition. We have joy and hope, even in the midst of suffering and grief. It's like we're walking across the waves of the storm. But then it's easy for us to lose focus, to stop looking to Jesus and see the storm once more. As Spurgeon says, if it's right to trust Jesus at all, why not trust him altogether if jesus can do us do a little he can do a lot so it makes sense for us to trust him if jesus is god then he is powerful and so if what he is asking you or inviting you to do feels impossible know that he's also offering his strength to make it possible But before we kind of move past Peter's failing, I I want you to see God's grace to him. Yes, he's rebuked, but I don't think it's a harsh rebuke because Peter calls out to Jesus, Lord, save me. I think this is the right approach. See, when we stuff up, when we go out onto the storm and we're, we're doing well and then we lose sight of that and we start to sink, it's easy for us to just try and fix it up ourselves. I got myself into this mess. I'm going to have to get myself out of it. I can't ask Jesus to do this. I can't expect him to, to fix it. But that's not faith. That's self-reliance. And what we need to do instead is what Peter does. He doesn't have too much pride to call out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And, of course, Jesus grabs his hand and does save him. And you know what? In the midst of this, Peter actually discovers even more of God's grace. See, he learns through this experience. He grows through this experience more than any of the other disciples. They all saw Jesus walking upon the waves. It was only Peter who had the courage to ask if he could do the same. And even though he failed, he discovered even more how Jesus provides for him. He grew through the storm. You're wondering, imagine, what happened to me in that park with the pond. I had this great dilemma, was God asking me to do this? Did I have divine authorization for this? I wanted to show faith, but I didn't want to be presumptuous. And either way, I figured I'll just give it a crack. And so I stepped out onto the water and got wet. (laughs) Now, to be honest, I really didn't mind. I knew that I probably didn't have divine authorization for this. It wasn't far from home. It wasn't too deep. But you know what, I've actually seen that God strengthened me through the experience. You see, I think what God was trying to help me to see was that I needed to look to him. Ivana and I were fretting about our relationship. We'd just started this relationship. We'd had previous relationships in our lives, significant relationships, which could have easily have ended in marriage with someone else, but they hadn't. And so when we'd come together, I think we were almost kind of fretting too much. It was like we were trying to play out the relationship before it actually happened. We actually needed to go step by step by step. We needed to trust Jesus in the relationship. We needed to to follow him and he would get us through. And it was so interesting from that moment on, basically, I just had this sense of permanence in our relationship that God was leading us and that he would lead us safely home. And that's the fifth thing that we see here, the fifth thing that we can say to ourselves. When we're in the midst of the storm, we can tell ourselves that Jesus will see me through. Jesus takes his disciples safely to the shore. And Peter's experiences show us that to get to the shore, we just need to keep watching Jesus. Keep following him. And that's the message of the Bible. Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. If you're a Christian, God has given you faith. He is the founder of that faith and he will perfect it. There will be storms in your life that will be challenging, but he will grow you through them. He will pray for you in them and he will ultimately lead you home. William Barclay writes, it's a simple fact of life, a fact which has been proved by countless thousands of men and women in every generation that when Christ is there, the storm becomes a calm, the tumult becomes a peace, what cannot be done is done, the unbearable becomes bearable and we pass the breaking point and do not break. To walk with Christ will be for us also the conquest of the storm. And ultimately we see this in the great storm. See, actually all of us have been born into a storm. The conflict between God and humanity it began with the first humans who were made to live with God and then turned from him. And it continues on through us and in us. We arrive in a world that's roiled by waves and storms of uh, disobedience and chaos untamable forces within us and around us. This is the reality of the storm of sin in this world. The precious message of Christianity is that Jesus comes into the storm to rescue us. He was sent into the storm. He didn't stay aloof on the mountains of heaven. He came down to the water. He walked upon the waves to bring us safely to the shore. And so as we finish, the question is, how will we respond to this Jesus? Will we deny him? Will we ignore the supernatural? Will we just write him off as a ghost or a fantasy? Will we keep trying to do it ourselves? Will we keep trying to work against the storms? Will we keep trying to get to the shore in our own strength? Or will we welcome him? Will we, like Peter, step out in faith and trust him and let him save us? and let him carry us safely home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this amazing story, a story of uh, supernatural wonder that shows us truly who you are, Jesus. We thank you that you are God. We thank you that you are powerful and good and kind. We thank you that you are praying for us even today. We thank you, Lord, that you, are, you come to us in the storm. Lord, I pray that you will come in our storms. If it needs to be the fourth watch, help us to keep watching, to keep looking for you, and grow us through these experiences. Please bring us safely home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church